Our scripture reading today comes from John 13, 1 through 7, then 34 and 35. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom. Welcome to the Leo campus. Uh, those of you who are joining us online, welcome on this uh, least wintry day in Kansas City. I hope you enjoyed the little snow. And what about that Chiefs win? Pretty amazing, huh? Well, for 85 years, Harvard University has done the most extensive study on human happiness. They followed the lives first of 724 men and then more than 1,300 of their male and female descendants trying to determine what makes people healthy and happy. Can you imagine the extensive research in this area? After 85 years, what was discovered? What is the real secret of happiness? Recently, two of the researchers have just published a remarkable book entitled The Good Life. And the subtitle is Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Here's their answer. They write, through all the years of studying these lives, one crucial factor stands out for consistency and power of its ties to physical and mental health and longevity. Contrary to what many people think, it's not career advancement or achievement or exercise or a healthy diet. Don't get us wrong, they say these things matter. But one thing continuously demonstrates its broad and enduring importance, and that's good relationships. The Harvard researchers tell us that the path to happiness and well-being comprehensively is paved with close and cherished friendship. Of course, Jesus already told us this. He spoke a great deal about happiness and the truly good life. His most famous, brilliant sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about what is the good life and where it's found. Brilliant Jesus didn't have to have access to the Harvard study on happiness. He already knew the path. That path to happiness now and forever was intimate friendship with himself and his close followers. In fact, the night before his crucifixion, this intimate joy-filled friendship was paramount on his mind on his heart and on his lips as he chose to spend time alone with his most cherished earthly friends. Now, when we think about Jesus, many things perhaps pop into our minds, right? 
Brilliant teacher, absolutely, off the charts. A great healer, yes. But do we think of Jesus as truly the best friend a person could ever have? This is where our text takes us this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And as a church family across our campuses, we are continually exploring this masterpiece gospel that has been translated into more languages in human history than any other book. Our series now is entitled, Behold Your King, and there's a companion journal. If you haven't joined us on the forum.life, I really encourage you to do that. It's wonderful. So as we come to chapter 13, it's very important as thoughtful readers and listeners to understand we are coming into a new literary section of this remarkable masterpiece. It begins in chapter 13 and goes to chapter 17. These five chapters are a literary unit. Scholars often describe them as the upper room discourse or the farewell address. So in telling the story of Jesus, the gospel writer John now compresses time from years to months to days to just a few unforgettable hours that Jesus spends with his closest earthly friends before he is arrested, tortured, and crucified. We see in the text, John places himself literally on the floor, reclining next to Jesus at the supper table, the Passover meal. So John gives us a very close-up personal window into an unforgettable moment that the rest of the gospel writers do not include in their text, the other three accounts. This is important. In fact, the Gospel of John is unique, and if you've studied the Gospels, you know that 95 or 93%, most scholars say, of John's writing is unique to John. And here it's completely unique. Why? Few, if any, human beings knew more or was known more by Jesus than John. They were truly BFFs. And that's where he writes from. Best friends. We must not miss this. So John's literary flow flows from his personal best friend experience as being in the innermost circle of Jesus' most closest and earthly cherished friends. So John wants us to grasp that Jesus, yes, his Lord and Savior, obviously, is also his best friend, the best friend anyone could ever have. And as we will see in our text this morning, Jesus was the... Shocking foot-washing king, for sure. But here, he is also the humble foot-washing friend. And I'd like us to see three characteristics of a foot-washing friend that Jesus embodies and calls us to emulate in spiritual community this morning. Three characteristics. First, Jesus is a friend who can always be counted on. This is where the whole literary unit is framed on in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1 that sets the tone of five chapters. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So here, in literary brilliance, in verse 1, John introduces us to this section. He cites to us as readers that in Jesus' earthly mission, it is about to come to a climax in crucifixion, resurrection, and then ascension of Jesus. 
So he sets the trajectory of the story. But he zooms right in in Jesus' tender and devoted love for his inner circle of 12 disciples who are truly his most cherished earthly friends. I want you to notice something. Twice in verse 1, in English, the word love pops up. And I want you to keep this in mind the next few messages, that 31 times, 31 times in chapter 13 through 17, this Greek word for love emerges. It is often described in its form, agape or agapao. It is translated into our English word love here. And we must not miss that it is an unconditional but deeply relational love. It is a love that can be counted on no matter what. It is a secure attachment love where as friends we are seen safe and secure. It is one that will never let us go. Now notice how John ends the bookend of this literary unit. Notice the phrase in your text, he loved them to the end. And when we read end in English, we often think duration of time. Like he, he, he loved them till he died. And that's true. But that's not the focus of this text. A better translation is he loved them to the utmost. It is a qualitative, totality, comprehensive love. The most love imaginable. The New International Version actually, I think, translates this better. Let me just quote it for you. Having loved his own who are in the world, he now showed them what? The full extent of his love. So Jesus' love for his closest earthly friends here is full extent. Its deepest death depths, its breadth of width is being declared. So in a very real sense, you will notice in the entire upper room conversation with the disciples, here in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is simply one continual call and reminder of Jesus' love for them and the high, high importance of us as his apprentices of loving other followers of Jesus. So loving each person in a local community that are followers of Jesus, that's the focal point here. Even with right, our insecurities, our frailties, our doubts, our failures, our anxieties, it is a love that holds tightly onto each other, longing to more fully know and love each other over time. Now Jesus knows his death is just hours away. Keep that in mind. So this matter of loving friendship is most on Jesus' heart. Let that sink into you a moment. Stop and think about that. What would be on your heart and lips if you knew you just had a couple hours or a few hours to live? Knowing this and that his death is just around the corner, Jesus' words must be taken with much, much greater weight in our lives. And notice the second characteristic. He's a friend who can always be counted on, but he's also a friend who humbly serves. This is where John showcases this in a contrasting, unforgettable moment. Look at verses 2 through 5. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now picture this. In the dark shadows of that upper room that is so saturated with the love of God, (laughs) there is a sense of evil lurking. And John wants us to know, right, that Jesus does something unthinkable. But he knows what it is taking place. He knows the evil one has chosen a strategy of betrayal, and Judas is the channel. Things are progressing according to God's sovereign script, of course. Nothing is taking Jesus by surprise. But he does something shocking here, unthinkable. Jesus picks up a towel. He washes his disciples' feet. Now think with me for a moment. If we understand the biblical story and the whole gospel of John, the very one whose hands formed the world, who became flesh and dwelt among us, the Logos, is now washing dirty feet. Jesus' heart tenderly embraces them as he washes their feet. And transparently, across time and culture and language, this is very hard for us to grasp. What his most cherished friends must have felt at that moment. Culturally, this is absolutely unthinkable because foot washing in the first century, and if you've spent time in the Middle East, they wore open sandals and there's a lot of dirty roads and you picked up a lot of dirty grime and sweat. It's a nasty thing. And before you had dinner, like we would wash our hands or something else, you, you washed your feet. In fact, you had a, the lowest servant of servants wash your feet before you got to the dinner table. Yet no one has washed anybody's feet. But how might we grasp the emotional intensity of the story? We, we wrestle with this as a teaching team because there's such cultural distance. But imagine with me for a moment. I'm going to try. Imagine having dinner in your home with some really famous person. Yes, your humble domicile. You get to hang out with someone you never imagined you'd hang out with. It might be Patrick Mahomes, right? Yo-Yo Ma, <laughs> Or a great writer like J.K. Rowling or an amazing successful business person like Elon Musk. So just imagine that somebody like that. Imagine you've invited your best buddies to come and enjoy this evening. All your guests arrive, nobody's late. And then you see that person walk up to your door and you just kind of go, wow, I can't believe this is happening. But in spite of their fame, they sit down, they're very down to earth, there's a wonderful conversation, everything is going great. And then one of the guests who left to go somewhere walks down the hall, comes back and whispers, you can't make it out, but your honored guest says, no, problem, I'll take care of it. Think Patrick Mahomes. Yo, yo, ma. A minute later, you follow, you're so curious, you go down the hall, what do you see next? You cannot believe, there they are. In your bathroom, plunger in hand with Lysol wipes. Yeah. Plunging your toilet, cleaning the mess at your house. Imagine how you would feel at that moment. You'd be embarrassed. You'd be horrified. You'd be mortified. There's no way you'd let them do that. You'd grab the plunger out of their hand and Lysol and wipe it up. This is maybe just a little bit culturally what Jesus' closest friends were feeling here. But there is also something else here that's often missed in this text because the gospel writer Mark helps us add texture. You remember 
I said, nobody washed any feet. The gospel writer Mark, Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45, you can look at this later, tells us what just happened before they came to the upper room. It's like underway to church, right? Things often happen. And something big happened to this group. Two of Jesus' disciples, and we know who they are, interesting names, James and John, came to Jesus and requested if they could have the two highest seats of honor in his kingdom. The other ten disciples heard it. And they're angry, to say the least. It's meltdown, meltdown time among the disciples. And Jesus reminds them in propositional language that greatness is not the seed of honor or power, but instead the posture of a servant who serves not out of obligation, but with kindness, tenderness, and gentleness. So you can imagine, imagine what is going on in that room. Jesus moves from proposition to incarnation example. Brilliant Jesus. He has an object lesson to teach him. He picks up the basin and towel. And, and Jesus' action of washing his disciples' feet rebuked what? Their prideful ambition and their lack of humility more than any words he could ever say. Because Jesus is the most brilliant teacher who ever graced this planet. And brilliant Jesus knew that transformation in the human heart comes not only by persuasive words that are said, also by unforgettable actions that are seen. As Jesus goes around washing each of his disciples' feet, John reminds us that Judas is right there. And there is this deep, awkward silence in the room. And verse 6 tells us, if you look at the text, Peter interrupts it. Maybe Jesus is just coming to his feet. I don't know. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the grammatical structure in the original language is more nuanced than that. There's really a hard way to translate this. If I were to translate it, it's more emphatic. You, in fact, the grammar is you first. You, my feet, no way. In other words, Peter is saying to Jesus, as Peter did this, not that, Jesus, you got this all wrong. And then there's an ensuing dialogue. You can read it, and we see that actually his foot washing is pointing to the cross. The one who can cleanse them from sin will soon shed his blood on the cross. But what is often missed in this text, it not only points to the cross, it sets the example for us as a church family. Jesus is very emphatic. It's not just pointing to the cross. It's an example we are to emulate. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. Interesting language, huh? And you are right, for so I am. If then I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. Literally, the word is a pattern, a template, a habit that you also should do just as I have done to you. See, Jesus, when you study his life, if you studied and the teaching of the Gospels, he consistently taught and embodied a servant posture as an essential loving posture of power in his kingdom. He said, whoever be great must be your servant, all the way through the Gospels. And in verse 17 if you'll notice, those who embrace humble foot-washing friendship, basin and towel servanthood, are on the path to what? To blessedness. This word is happiness. The happiness path. Now, while Jesus may have washed the feet of others, let me just also make an observation. 
that I think, again, is not made enough here. With confidence, but not with certainty. Let me make the observation, there is no indication in the gospel, any gospel, of Jesus washing anybody else's feet other than this moment. Now, we don't know. Well, Jesus may have done that. It's very instructive the gospel writers never talk about that. Jesus washed the feet of his closest, most cherished friends. That's the focus of this text. The only other time we observe a foot washing, per se, in the New Testament is exhibited by one of Jesus' closest friends, Mary. And if you remember the story, Mary washed Jesus' feet and then dried them with her hair. So Jesus' humility is seen not only in washing the feet of his closest friends, but maybe even more impressive, allowing Mary to wash his feet. Isn't it true, friends? Humble foot-washing friendship involves both. Serving and being served. And many times being served is harder than serving. Love here is uniquely experienced in humble action toward one another. It is undoing the aloneness we feel in our fallenness. Jesus is a friend who can always be counted on. He's a friend who humbly serves. And last, notice, he is a friend who loves no matter what. In verses 21 through 30, John focuses our attention now on Judas' unimaginable betrayal of Jesus. Of all the pain Jesus must have felt, I think this had to be the hardest. Because betrayal, isn't it, maybe the greatest pain we ever experience in life. Isn't it true? It's one of the deepest wounds, most gaping wounds of the human heart. And you may have had or are currently experiencing the excruciating pain, the deep heart wounds from an unfaithful spouse or a manipulative family member or an opportunistic fellow worker or a close friend who no longer has room or interest in your life. And betrayal, of course, by nature is not about casual acquaintances. It's about our closest, most dearest, trusted friends who are we are most vulnerable to. Betrayal happens when the person we would never, ever, ever expect would do the unthinkable. Isn't it interesting? John knows this. He says none of Jesus' closest friends in that room ever suspected Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' closest, most trusted men. In fact, he was entrusted with the money of the group. (laughs) I mean, you trust someone with your money, you trust them. Yet Jesus still, knowing all of this, lovingly extends to Judas another unique act of friendship in the culture. And you'll notice in the story that he takes this bread, it's a common cup, common dish, like a stew dish, and he takes the bread, breaks it, and hands it to Judas. Is it a statement of hospitality and the closest trusted friendship. Jesus shows unimaginable love no matter what. And isn't that why he came for us? To show grace and mercy to us that all of us desperately need? To pardon and deliver us when we come to him in repentance and faith for forgiveness? Like washing his close friend's feet, 
What Jesus does here is instructive for us about our friendship. We must not miss that. Jesus is a friend who loves you no matter what. A friend who died for you and me. Jesus is a friend who gave his life for you. And his foot washing points us to the cross where you and I can find forgiveness by faith through grace and receive a new life. And the intimacy we lost in the garden is now available once again in Christ. It is a new life of intimate friendship with Jesus now and for all eternity. So here in John 13, Jesus calls us as his apprentices to his foot washing steps. Jesus reframes friendship, both its high importance and its deeper depth. He shows us that Christian friendship is a distinct friendship. It is marked by foot washing, a Christ-like love. Look at verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my apprentices or disciples or followers if you have love for one another. And that is a statement of authentication. You will notice if you study the Bible, a new commandment to love is not new. What does he mean? He means it's new in terms of he's raised the bar that was taught in the Old Testament to a higher level. Not only of commitment, but of mutual affection and tenderness and cherishing. Jesus said he would build his church and the bride he cherishes in so many ways. The local church is a Christian community. It is a fellowship of foot-washing friends. Friendship formation leads to happiness and transformation. Friendship is vital. Deep Christian friendship is vital for your happiness and your formation in Christ-likeness. For we are a fellowship of foot-washing friends. So the question for all of us, for our church family, for each one of us individually, is what kind of foot-washing friends are we? Jesus said again, the mark, the most important mark of authentic followership or apprenticeship is a foot-washing love for one another. So let's together take an inventory this week of our Christian friendship. Three questions to consider. First, can you be counted on? Can I be counted on? Can you be counted on to be part of our weekly corporate worship services, for example? See, a big part of finding, forming, and deepening Christian friendships is right here on Sunday mornings. This is one of the dynamics why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake any together. Jesus designed the local church, and again, it's never perfect. It's never easy to be a gathering place where several of our closest lifelong foot-washing friends are formed, nurtured, and deepened. That's his design and desire for us. Can a Christian brother or sister count on you to do what you say? To put others' interests above your own? And outside these walls in your Monday worlds where you go to school, where you work, can you be counted on to fulfill your commitments to do your work well? We are to be known as followers of Jesus if we are the real deal for how deeply we express and experience the love of Christ and how that overflows in every calling and relationship we have throughout the week. Can you be counted on? Secondly, are you there no matter what? Are you there no matter what? When things get difficult in a friendship with a brother or sister in Christ, when you see things differently, 
when you are going through or they're going through a really rough patch in their lives, when they're ambushed by grief, are you there for them no matter what? Or when things get hard, you sort of disappear emotionally or physically from their lives. When you feel disappointed or misunderstood, and again, that happens among Christian friends, do you distance yourself from them emotionally or physically? And as Kurt Thompson reminds us, will you stay in the room with them or will you walk out of the room on them? You know, the book of Proverbs has such great wisdom here. It? There's a wonderful little verse that says, there is a friend, and this is what we saw, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother or sister. Because the local church is a new family. How sticky are you as a Christian friend? Lastly, are you quick and eager to serve, friends? This text reminds us of this, doesn't it, in amazing ways. Where are you eagerly picking up the basin and towel and serving others? First of all, if you're married at home with your spouse or if you have a roommate with that person living close to you, what about your children, your grandchildren, your workplace, those you work with this week? Where are you picking up the basin and towel and serving needs in our church family? You just heard about a need in our children's ministry. There are many ways you all serve in amazing ways, but there's always a need. When a brother or sister in Christ has lost a job, when a brother or sister that you know, I mean, you can't know everybody like this, but a handful of people, has received a troubling physical diagnosis, is struggling with mental health issues, is facing a financial loss, do you look for ways to serve and express foot-washing love to them? Maybe it's taking a meal. Maybe it's writing an actual physical note. <laughs> or running errands for them. And can you sit with a loved Christian friend in their joys and rejoice with them in their successes or share the grief of their suffering and simply be with them offering your loving presence? And again, if you're not in a small group at Christ Community, may I encourage you to pursue one, a community group or whatever, where you can foster deep friendships and model foot-washing friendships. What this is going to take is loving intentionality. For many of us, it's going to mean slowing down in life, making more time for those close, cherished Christian friendships. For many of us, it'll mean getting off our screen more. So let's be fully present, fully present to know the beauty and hearts of those closest to us, those dear Christian friends we are doing life with. Maybe it's our most cherished 12. I don't know. Jesus modeled this for us, and he calls us to this. This is the path of the good life. <laughs> what Harvard researchers have discovered through empirical research. It's about the closest, cherished friends of life. And God designed the church to be that, the local church in your life and mine. Washing his disciples' feet, Jesus said, by this kind of love for one another, the world will know you are really the real deal. You are my apprentices. The world's going to see that. And you know what? Perhaps like never before in my history, people who don't know Christ yet or aren't people of faith are looking at the church. They're watching. I was freshly reminded of this <clears throat> in a memorial service we did right here in this space this past week. 
Memorial service was for the mom of one of our wonderful members here for a long time. She, she's been here. In later years, Betty had suffered from Alzheimer's disease, which is a brutal disease, as you know. Year after year, her Christian husband, Hank, <laughs> lovingly cared for her. And during the COVID pandemic, because of the dangers of the virus to Betty, Hank would go to her care facility every day and sit for hours just outside her window pane next to her bed. Day after day. And you know what? One of the caregivers of that facility began to take notice. The loving, foot-washing friendship she saw moved her so much, she wrote a poem about Hank's love for Betty. And she titled this poem, A Loving Heart. Can I share just a few words with you in closing? Watching Hank love Betty, Christian foot-washing love. She wrote, words do not convey the tender, sacred moment of quiet love. Unknowingly, I had turned a corner to be surprised by the wonderful whisperings of God. Jesus is truly the best friend a person could ever have. Let's pursue that friendship with Jesus with renewed passion and heart. And let's be the kind of friend that our brothers and sisters in Christ so deeply long for. The world around us is watching. My question is, what are they seeing? Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the foot-washing king that overwhelms us. But you are also our foot-washing friend. May we draw near to you, and may we love others with the love you have loved us in washing their feet.